We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is where we're going to be for the majority of our evening together. And in Luke 15, Jesus is facing a very familiar criticism, something that had been leveled at him from the religious establishment almost the entire time he was in ministry teaching and preaching. This sets the scene for us in Luke 15:1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. But this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. Jesus spent so much of his time, so much of his ministry with people that the religious establishment and the leaders felt were less than. You know, how could not only a rabbi, a religious teacher, but the one claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, spend time with people who were sinful and people who didn't deserve to be around such religious influence? And this criticism kept coming at Jesus. And if it, if it were me, and I kept receiving the same critique over and over about what I was doing and how it was abhorrent and wrong, my tendency would be to lash out and to defend myself, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus, as he always did, used this as a teaching opportunity, an opportunity to, to help people understand more about who God is. So Jesus tells a story. He tells a series of stories in Luke 15, the one we're going to focus on tonight, probably his most famous story, one that even literary critics today say is the best written short story ever, the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus says that there, there was this, this man, this wealthy man who had enough, enough property, enough means to be able to hire servants and have an estate, have influence in his community, and he had enough wealth to be able to ensure that his two sons would be taken care of after he was gone, except his younger son went to his father one day and said, I don't want to wait until I'm too old to enjoy this great wealth. I want you to give me what is mine today. Give me my share of the inheritance before you die today so that I can go off and enjoy it. Now, to us, that sounds, that sounds a little bit rude, but, you know, who among us haven't asked our parents for some money every now and then? Maybe this isn't such a big deal. Maybe we're making too big a deal out of this. So biblical anthropologists have actually gone to the Middle East to interview people of the same situation, people who farm and have property in the Middle East and who have children. Because remember, Jesus was writing this in ancient Palestine to that audience. And so maybe there's something there that we're just not picking up on. And, and when these anthropologists, these researchers go over there to describe this story to them and they say, is that something that is done Maybe that's something that's acceptable in that culture, that, that you could ask for your inheritance early and we're missing something in this, in this piece. Is that something that you would just do? And, and every single one of them said, absolutely not. That would never be done. They're shocked that you would even say something like that. And when asked why that wouldn't be done and why this is such a shocking request, they say, because it's not about the money. What that request actually says is, I wish you were dead. That's what, that, that's what is underlying that entire request. I want your money now as though you were dead already. I don't want you to be alive. I'm going to pretend as though you have already passed. Give me my share of the inheritance. And as shocking as that would have been to Jesus' audience then, I think what might have been more shocking is that the father actually just did it. Jesus doesn't say that he put up a fight, doesn't say he tried to talk his son out of it. It just says the father divided his inheritance between his two sons. The older likely would have been given two-thirds of the property. The younger would have been given one-third. And then it says, off he went, the Bible says, for wild living, to enjoy the pleasures of the world and to spend his money on whatever he desired until it was all gone. 
Jesus said he spent every last dollar. Everything was gone. And, and about that time that the money ran out, there was also a famine in the land. And so now there's no more food. There's no money. There's no food. And so this boy, having spent all that he has and having nothing else to do and to go to, decides to take up a job on a pig farm. Working among pigs would have been the epitome of uncleanliness in Jewish culture at that time. Not only was he working among pigs, he was actually living with them, sleeping in the barn with the pigs, eating the same food that they were eating. This was rock bottom, is what Jesus is telling us. This is as bad as it could possibly get for somebody in that culture in that day because of their bad decisions. This was it. And it says, at that place, when there was everything gone, it says that he finally came to his senses. This young man, Jesus said, finally came to his senses and he said, my, my father's hired servants have it better than me. They at least have some food. They have a place to sleep. I am going to go home. And like so many of us do, if you've ever messed up really bad, have you ever messed up so bad that you script out an apology? You write down exactly, I need to tell this person exactly this, and if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget. And so I can even picture this son as he turns and starts the long, slow walk home, and he's taking labored step after labored step. He's rehearsing in his head this apology that goes like this, Father, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against God. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just take me back as a hired hand. That was the apology that he was about to give to his father. This is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of the season of Lent. Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday, which this year is April 1st, and I, I, hope, I hope to see all of you there. We'll have a lot of services that Saturday and Sunday and things for, for the kids to do on Saturday afternoon, so I think it's going to be a fantastic time. But Ash Wednesday is the beginning of, of Lent because we use it to remind ourselves of all the things that Jesus has done for us in our brokenness when we hit rock bottom to make sure that we have a relationship with God forever, secured. It's a, it gives us a chance to reflect on our mortality, on the nature of our lives as they stand today, and to see what we might need to change leading up to our celebration of Jesus' victory over death on Easter. When you, when you come forward at the end of this message, you'll be offered communion. We'll have communion that you are all welcome to partake. And then one of our volunteers will actually impose ashes on the, as a, in the sign of a cross on your forehead. And they'll say this to you. They'll say, remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Of course, implicit in this statement is, is a sense of mourning, a sense of grief. In Bible times, people who were in periods of mourning in their life would cover themselves in ashes to show the world that that was their condition. They are mourning mortality. They are mourning loss and pain. And certainly that is a part of today, but I don't see it as just grief-stricken. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. To me, I see in this almost an element of, of hope. The idea that we can come home. You see, God made us from the dust of the earth. God, with his, with his own hands and with his heart and with his spirit, breathed life into us. The breath of God came into us. He made you. He formed you. He knows you and he loves you. And there is a chance for us, if we're pointed in the right direction, if we believe in Jesus, if we, if we agree with what he has done for us to save us and to offer us God's grace freely, then at a certain point, we get to return to that elemental relationship with God. That creative relationship where we were with him perfectly, that there's hope for us 
in that, as long as we are pointed, again, in the right direction. The movie we watched earlier is, is a clip from the movie Legends of the Fall. Legends of the Fall was made in the early 90s, and it, it, its setting, it's, it's actually a, a cinematic adaptation of a fictional story covering the, the Ludlow family in Montana around about the turn of the 20th century. So in the early 1900s, Colonel Ludlow, played by Anthony Hopkins, has three sons living on his ranch with him. Alfred, the oldest son, Tristan, the middle son, played by Brad Pitt, and the younger son, Samuel. In the scene that we watched, all three boys have decided against the wishes of their father that they are going to go off and fight in World War I. Colonel Ludlow had seen conflict in the United States in the latter part of the 1800s, and he didn't want his children to have to grow up like that, but these boys felt a sense of, of bravery, a sense of duty, and even you heard the younger son said, I'll bring the Kaiser's helmet back, a sense of glory. They wanted something out of their life. They wanted to leave home to see what was out there, so they're going to leave. The father grabs the middle son, Tristan, and says, you take care of Samuel, your younger brother. And that seems kind of peculiar. Doesn't that sound like the job for an older brother? Shouldn't the older brother have to take care of the other two? But Tristan, throughout this movie, throughout Legends of the Fall, is, is painted as a prodigal character. You know, I used to think when, when I heard the, the story of the prodigal son when I was a younger guy, I thought that prodigal meant somebody who comes home. I thought that that was just the definition of the word. I'm spoiling the ending. The, the son comes home at the end. I thought that that was what the word prodigal meant, someone who returns home. But actually, the dictionary definition of prodigal is wastefully excessive. That's what that word means, wastefully excessive, as though, as though the point of Jesus' story is some moralistic explanation about how, you know, you shouldn't be prideful and arrogant and take things that don't belong to you. You shouldn't go squander things on, on, on the pleasures of this life, and don't you do that. And that's not the point of Jesus' story. A prodigal is someone who is wastefully excessive, and you and I can, I think, relate to that. That gives us a chance to relate, because all of us are prodigals to one degree or another. All of us are wastefully excessive in our lives, maybe not with material things, maybe so, but, but a lot of us tend to be reckless with, with our emotions or with our relationships, with our time, with the way that we interact with other people, and that's Tristan. Tristan's one of those characters who, and maybe you know somebody like this, his, his best qualities are also some of his worst flaws. He's passionate, and he's brave, and he's courageous, but he is also impulsive. He is reckless. He is violent. But that also makes him somebody you'd want to stand next to you on a field of battle. And so the father says, you take care of your younger brother, Samuel. But Samuel dies. He dies in a conflict, and, and, and Tristan is there to see it when it happens. And, and while Alfred, the older brother, the dutiful son, returns home at the end, He's able to go home and return to his father's property, begin investing in family relationships and in the things you do as, as a dutiful son. Tristan writes home and he says, I'm not coming back. I can't return home. I've experienced too much in this life. I've lost too much. I've grieved too much. I've watched my younger brother die. I have failed to protect him. And I'm going to go searching for whatever can fill this empty spot inside of my heart. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And much of the rest of the movie actually follows his life as he wanders from place to place all over the world, seeking fulfillment in the various pleasures of life and the various spiritualities and, and the, the journey that he is on to try and fill something in his heart, the restlessness that he feels, the wildness that is a part of who he is. He's almost the epitome of what the, the theologian Augustine wrote in a book called The Confessions in the fourth century. He wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. 
That was Tristan. That's all of us. Our hearts are restless until they find our rest in God. A more modern-day example, a writer, a theologian named Henry Nouwen actually writing a book about the prodigal son. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. I encourage you to read it. He says in that book, I am the prodigal every time I go searching for unconditional love where it cannot be found. I'm the prodigal every time I go searching for unconditional love where it cannot be found. We were made for the love of God. He made us from the dust of the earth and he made us to be in a relationship with him and no other relationship, no other form of satisfaction can meet that need in our lives. We will be restless without God, without him inside of us, without him with us. Nothing else will do. In the centuries-long debate about what, what is the root cause of sin, why do we do these things to ourselves? Why do we hurt other people? Why do we wound ourselves? Why are we constantly disobeying, wandering away from home, reaching rock bottom? What is the cause of all of that? What is the cause of another mass shooting today in Florida? We pray for those people who are facing profound loss and hurt right now. What is the cause? What, what is it in us that does these things? And theologians have speculated, maybe it's pride. Maybe pride is the cause of all of our sin. You think about the Garden of Eden and the serpent tempting Eve, and, and he says, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know everything. You'll have all wisdom of good and evil. And, and there was pride there. And so Adam and Eve sinned against God because they were prideful. They wanted to be like him. Or maybe it's jealousy. Maybe not having something in our lives is, is the cause of all of our sin. Maybe, maybe wanting something that isn't ours and that we can't have. The prodigal son wanted something that didn't belong to him yet. Maybe that's the cause of all of our sin. Maybe it's fear. Maybe we're all really afraid. And that causes us to lash out and to be defensive. The most convincing answer I heard to this question of what is the root cause of all sin actually came from a professor of mine. He was a C.S. Lewis scholar when I was in graduate school. And, and through the readings of a lot of people like Beekner, like, like Augustine, like, like Nowen, like C.S. Lewis, he said, I, I don't think the root cause of sin is pride or jealousy or fear. I think it's actually anytime we refuse to be loved by God. Anytime we don't believe that God really loves us the way that he says in Scripture, unconditionally, in spite of everything you would ever do, nothing can separate you from God. But if you don't believe that, that's what causes us to go and search for his love everywhere but him. And anytime we try to take that love and try to use it to fill ourselves, to try and meet those empty needs inside of us, that is where sin comes from. That is where we become greedy and violent. That is where we become hurtful. That is where we become sinful. Lent is 40 days long, and this is the beginning of it, and, and it's 40 days for a reason. Matthew chapter 4 actually tells us that Jesus, when he started his ministry, was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and for 40 nights. And it says he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights from food and water. And then it says he was hungry. It's the understatement of Scripture. I'm sure he was hungry. How did it become that, that what we want to relate to, this kind of fasting, Jesus in the, in the wilderness is proving his faithfulness. There's a symmetry here in Jesus' life. You think about the, the, the Israelites leaving Egypt in the Exodus. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are faithless to God. 
They rebel against God. They follow every temptation. Their path is so all over the road. They travel in circles, and they sin repeatedly and repeatedly. So Jesus says, where Israel was faithless, I will be faithful. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. Satan tempts him with the same things that Israel was tempted with in the book of Exodus. And every time Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He was faithful. That's what Lent is supposed to call our attention to, the faithfulness of God, everything that Jesus has done for us. And yet we think that that gives us permission to fast from things like sweets or social media. And it, in no uncertain terms, it is too small that we would take a break from candy during these 40 days. It is too small that we would take a break from Twitter, that we, would, that we think that making these minor course adjustments, these little corrections on the road, when the call of the gospel is a complete 180 degree turn to go back home. To find the love of God in him and not anything else in these small desires. And we think that that's, that that's okay. And this isn't just something that, that I'm passionate about. This is a theme that God has all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, we read in our Scripture reading for the day and in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was who Isaiah was talking about, a voice in the wilderness saying, Make straight your paths, prepare the way for the Lord. Repent from your sins. Turn around. This is what Isaiah has to say. God speaking through his prophet, Isaiah chapter 1. God says, what makes you think I want all of your sacrifices? I am sick of your offerings. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through your courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. As for your celebrations and your Sabbaths and your special days for fasting... They are sinful and they are false. I want no more of your pious meetings, God says. He says, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight, God says. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. And this is my favorite part. Isaiah 118, God says, come now and let's settle this. Let, let's get this figured out once and for all. All of the things in your life that are a barrier between you and God, let's not just play around with them anymore. Let's settle this, God says. And he says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. God will do this. God will be victorious in your life. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. There's no gradient color in between. God says, what is completely red and stained, I will make completely clean. Nothing in between. God's love for you is perfect. He doesn't want anything less than you than the complete and full life offered in a relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want us to walk through life wandering and struggling and, and aimlessly running into our little things that we think we can just adjust and move out of our way every now and then. God wants you to be in his arms experiencing his full and complete love forever. Nothing less will do for God than that. To be washed completely clean. To be set completely free. There's a writer named John Bunyan who, he wrote his, his most famous book hundreds of years ago. Uh, it's a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and that's definitely a title I can get behind. I get that. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And Bunyan was actually writing this book from prison, reflecting on his own life, reflecting on his struggles with sin, realizing that, yes, God has claimed complete victory over sin on the cross. It's all taken care of. The war has been won. But why do I still keep doing this stuff? What, what is it that keeps me in, in, in my own pigsty of sin? Why do I keep wandering away from God's perfect love to chase things that are less than that? 
And interestingly, he compares his battle with sin to another famous story in Scripture, David and Goliath. He says he felt like sin was Goliath to him, this giant figure in his way, this huge warrior, insurmountable, not overcomable. And I think if you don't feel yet like your sins are giants standing in front of you, then you might need to spend some time coming to your senses because they absolutely are. They have to be confronted. They have to be dealt with. Battle has to be waged with those sins in your life. David was still a a young man when when this event occurred. In 1 Samuel 17, you can read about this whole story. David, a, a teenager relatively, had just been anointed to be the future king of the nation of Israel. He was passed over all of his older brothers. So I can already kind of see some of the prodigal son themes at work here. But there was already a king named Saul on the throne, so David is waiting at home while his older brothers go off to war. The nation of Israel is at war with the Philistine army. David is sent by his parents to the battlefield to check up on things, to send some food and some supplies. And when he gets there, what he sees is the Israelites on one side of a valley, the Philistines on the other side of the valley, and nothing going on in between. And he says, where's the fight? Where's the battle? You both look like you're just camping next to each other. And then he saw it. Then he saw Goliath march to the center of the battlefield. And Goliath, the Bible says, is it was nine feet tall. And and because of archaeological evidence, we're learning that this wasn't just mythology, that there actually were giants living in the land at this time. Nine feet tall, walking to the center of the field. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. The end of his spear weighed 15 pounds all on its own. He was a giant. And not only that, he was a professional soldier, trained in war. And every day he would go to the battlefield and he would taunt the Israelite armies and say, if any one of you, one champion can defeat me, you'll win the war. And no one ever came. They'd been stalemated like that for over a month. Goliath was taunting the nation of Israel. And do you ever feel like your sins taunt you? Who among us hasn't laid awake at night? after a day day feeling like a failure in our lives, once again having wandered away from God only to trip over the things that we keep tripping over, hearing that voice inside of our head saying, you'll never beat me. You'll never overcome this, this giant standing in front of you, taunting you and saying, you're not good enough. And what would you do without me anyway? How else would you fill that empty space that I'm filling? John Bunyan says, I see in David's struggle with Goliath a model for how to overcome sin in your life. And he shares it with us. And the first thing David does is he gets angry about it. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Have you gotten angry about your sin? Are you at a place yet where you've just had enough? No more of this little stuff here and there that you're going to course correct and make minor adjustments and and this or that little thing. Are you just angry enough that you're willing to stand up and fight? Who is this? An affront to God. So David finds King Saul and he says, I'm going to go fight him. None of you guys are willing to do anything about this. I'm going to stand in front of him and I'm going to fight him. Because he is an abomination to God. He is an affront to everything God is standing for. What is good and right in my life. And Saul laughs at David. 
I think that there would be people in your life when you decide, when you are resolute and angry enough about your sins, when you decide that you're going to change, when you're going to overcome, that there will be people because of their own insecurities, their own failures, and their own sins that they don't want to deal with, they might laugh at you. They might become a part of that voice inside of your head that says, you can't do that. Who who do you think you really are that you could overcome those things in your life? That's just piety anyway. God's forgiven you of all your sins. Why bother trying to fight them? David is resolute. I will fight Goliath. And so Saul says, fine, but you have to wear my armor. If you're going to go to war, you need to put on all of my armor. You need to at least be protected out there. But Saul was a grown man and David was a teenager and the armor was too big. It didn't fit. There was no way he could fight in all of that stuff. And, And that is what Bunyan says are those quick fixes in our lives that we think are good enough. We think if we just, if we put on one more piece of armor, if we read one more book, if we go to one more conference, if we do one more seminar or listen to one more podcast about how to, how to help ourselves, how to overcome and how to be victorious, if we listen to one more sermon, that that'll be the key that finally unlocks our freedom from sin. And what ends up happening is that we keep putting on pieces of armor, but we never get into the fight. We never go to war. We just keep sitting on the sidelines, putting on bits of armor until we're too weighed down to do anything. And David throws all of that off and he says, I don't need any of it. You come at me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's army. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. God is fighting by your side and he is all you need to overcome the sin in your life. Those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God is powerful enough to overcome everything that you will ever go through in your life. His love is too great. His power is too immense to let you fail. God will be fighting with you. So David picks up stones at the stream on the battlefield. He puts one in his slingshot and he throws one right between Goliath's eyes. And Goliath falls. And the battle seems to be over. Israel's cheering. The Philistines are shocked. Their champion is on the ground. And here's this teenager who's just knocked him down with no armor and no weapons except for a rock. That's not the end of the story. John Bunyan continues. He says, how, how many times in your life have you thought you were through with something? You felt like you were victorious over this or that addiction or this or that problem or habit or behavior, only to see it come back years later through some set of grief that you experience brand new or some new sorrow or fresh pain, and all of a sudden that sin just gets right up off the dirt and stares you down again. The end of the story is David picks up Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off, destroying it forever, getting it completely and totally out of the way. You know, if, if, these, if these little things in your life that you're tempted to take a break from, if those are barriers between you and the love of God, don't just give them up for 40 days. Give them up forever. They'll always be a problem for you. Jesus said, why? If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It'd be better to enter heaven with one good arm than enter hell with two good ones. Get rid of those things from your life completely. Don't settle for anything less than God's perfect love for your life that he offers to you freely. Because God is with you, fighting for you, no matter how far away you've wandered. Some of us don't feel like that. Some of us don't feel like God is very close. Some of us feel as though we've wandered too far away. When when Jesus arrived on the scene, the nation of Israel hadn't actually heard from God through one of their prophets 
for 400 years. The end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament where Jesus shows up 400 years not knowing if God heard them, not hearing through a prophet the words of God, still having the scriptures and still having their laws and things to do, but they hadn't had a fresh word until here comes Jesus, not only claiming to speak for God, but to be God himself. I can imagine why the Pharisees were a little bit skeptical. They couldn't quite buy it. Is God really close to us? Is he really right here? I don't believe that. I refuse to believe in the love of God. And then sin happens. You might be feeling that today. Remember the promise that God offers. Deuteronomy 31.8, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. God is right there with you. God is waiting for you to come home, to find your way back into his loving arms and in a relationship with him. Let's watch. In that same book that Henry Nouwen wrote about this parable, about even this painting that Rembrandt painted, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he said, faith is the radical trust that home has always been there and always will be there. Billy Graham used to call this parable the parable of the good father because that's who it's really about. It's not about the son and his sin, those things we know about. You and I know where we're broken. We experience that on a daily basis. But what we don't know, what we fail to grasp time and time again, is the depth of God's love for us. Jesus says when the, the younger son was, was just making his way a long way off, the father took off running down the road to embrace him. And those same researchers asked Middle Easterners, would that actually happen? You know, here was this father who was probably well regarded in the community, employed a lot of people, had a high standing was publicly shamed by his own son, lost a third of his wealth because of his son. Would he risk further shame by just going out in public and embrace? No. And, God, and Jesus says, that's what God's love is for you. He wraps you up in his arms when you come home. He gets the party started. The welcome party goes when you come home. Home is always there and always will be there. So if today you're struggling to, to find that love, if you're wondering if God's ready to embrace you, if you haven't yet made your turn towards home, if you just can't believe the truth that it says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, this is your invitation.